We are in Acts chapter 5, if you have a Bible, you want to find chapter 5, verse 12. We've got a lot of work to do, to be honest with you. We've got to get to the end of the chapter, um, and God willing, we will. Acts chapter 5, verses 12. I have my own confession over the last several weeks, plowing through Acts, have felt like every week is another confrontation of my own soul. Um, I don't know if that feels that way for you, but to me. And so sometimes I write questions that I'm absolutely convinced the Holy Spirit wants me to answer, <laughs> but I write them and tell you, so you probably feel the burden of my angst, um, and I, I apologize for that. I do not want Acts to feel like a perpetual introspection of failure, all right? Um, but I'm honest about what, what at least I feel like he's asking me. Like, I don't feel like we can take these steps through the description of the early church without saying, does it look anything alike? Like, is there any DNA re- uh, resemblance at all, or are we just so different now that there's no way to look at an early church like Acts and say, well, that's who we are. So that's partly why. Um, I just don't want you to grow weary, all right, Um, because God knows what we need to hear, amen? And he, he is, timing is perfect, and his confrontation is precise. Would you say amen to that too? Uh, but I, I believe that, and however he wants to deal with us, it's up to him. Uh, but here's something else that's always true in the midst of all these questions I'm asking my own soul is that, that God is always encouraging my trust every time too. Like I'm always being like encouraged again that his church is really on the move because the spirit of God is in it and he's made a promise to shape us, form us, and finish the work that he started Amen. And so I look at that and I go, okay, however much it stings to ask the questions about where I come up short, like last week, you know, just the example of Ananias and Sapphira and ask the question, how much do we pretend? How much do I pretend? I'm convicted. And, and so, uh, but I'm also encouraged that God's more committed to my development and my future than I would ever be. So there's hope in our story. Amen. Um, I don't know if you've paid attention enough. <laughs> that sounds judgmental, didn't it? Um, uh, there is a rhythm to what we're studying, and you're going to notice it as soon as I uh, kind of point to it. There's a ryth- rhythm of, of two things that are happening, have happened so far in our text, and will happen throughout Acts. I, I, this is my definition. God does crazy stuff, stuff, and the challenges that follow. On again, off again. Um, We've seen it from the very beginning. Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit, remember the church was told, wait, wait here, because the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's coming. And when he came, the church looked totally different. They were speaking in languages they didn't know, and the text tells us that thousands of people were converted to Jesus, mega church, day one, a pretty incredible uh, event for them. Peter and John on their way to the temple, average day in the life of these guys, they meet a crippled man, they say, rise and walk. He does great, great couple of days in the church, right? only to be followed by the challenge. They're arrested. And now they're standing in front of the leadership of Israel having to get a, give an account for the good things they had done. Sounds confusing, but it's true. They were threatened and released. It tells us this next great event, the church gathers after that and says, hey, what happened, John? What happened, Peter? Tell us the story. And they said, well, they threatened us. Let's pray. And they prayed, and the Holy Spirit broke out again, and they were all filled with the Spirit. And a wonderful description of the early church takes place. They were of one heart and one soul, the text tells us. They had everything in common. Nobody owned anything. In essence, they just kind of made it communal property and met people's needs. Crazy things were happening. God's grace on all of them, his power on all of them. A really wonderful, wonderful moment in the church, directly followed by a challenge. Because we read it last week, Ananias and Sapphira. 
They're having a great worship moment. And these two people show up and decide that they were more inclined to want the approval of man than, the, than God's favor. And so they lied to the church about being committed at the highest level. Hey, we're giving all of our money. If you were here, you heard this uh, particular story and God killed them. I don't know how else to tell you that, but that's the way to purify a worship service like right now. Like right now, we'll, we'll do that. Um, but that was a challenge. My assumption is this mega church had a lot of Klingons, you know what I'm saying, when it started. And as soon as they started, as soon as God broke out on Ananias and Sapphira, a whole bunch of people started to reassess their commitment. Do I want to be a part of this? We'll notice in a minute because Luke tells us what happened after that. But even today, we're going to find that even after that event with Ananias and Sapphira, it's another great moment for the church. The church is booming. In spite of that incredibly intense moment, it's booming in growth. The text tells us that multitudes of people, signs and wonders were being performed, great reputation with outsiders, conversions and healings. I mean, if you want to synthesize a discussion about it's really good right now, that paragraph would be it. Followed by a challenge that we'll see today. They're arrested again. Now all the disciples are arrested. This time, the tension escalates from threatened to beaten. And they have to pay for it physically for their connection with Jesus. Only to be followed next week by another story, a great moment. The church leaves that suffering and they just rejoice. They preach with boldness the person of Jesus Christ. They organize the church to meet the needs of widows who are going without food. And the text tells us that they multiplied in number again. Great day in the church, only to be followed by the stoning of Stephen. Good things, crazy good things, and challenges over and over again. And here's the point that I, I think we need to just say as we progress through these rhythms, that there's always opposition to Jesus and his church. You know that, right? There is always opposition, but here's the truth. God cannot and will not be stopped. That is the essence of what we're going to discover in Acts, that he is about his glory. He has made a promise to form us into the image of Jesus. He says that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He's on mission. He's going to finish. And even though there's opposition, even though there's threats clearly to the early church, um, God cannot be stopped. In fact, what we know from other epistles is that most of the time that God grows us more into the image of Jesus is through suffering, right? Challenges, threats, needs, sickness, trouble. He changes us. He transforms us. He blesses us in the midst of those things. And we, we would all say amen to that. I, I just want to do one thing today. I have one objective. I just want to encourage you. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be questions, okay? Self-evaluating questions. But I want you to see this list that I've created as a way to encourage you about what God is doing in his church, okay? So I've given it just a very simple title. If you like notes, here's where you write. Um, what happens when God blesses his people? What happens when God blesses his people? Here's the very first thing from our, from our text. God answers prayer, okay? You have to back up to chapter four, verses 29 to 30. So we'll get the prayer that they prayed after the arrest. Remember that uh, 
Peter and John had come back after the first arrest and they got together and go, what's going on? And so they got together and prayed and this is what they prayed. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. One verse later, he answers the prayer. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Answer number one. Now skip over to verse 12 to see the totality of the answer of chapter five. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. That's what happened. I I did have a question when I was reading this. What made their prayers so tangible and God's answers so immediate? I mean, I'm I'm not a prayer warrior. I just confess that. I want to be. And I have seriously put lines in the sand, that sounds arrogant, but like, God, please do this. And I felt like these were God-centered thoughts. I feel like I wonder sometimes why they're not as immediate as it appears to be in in this text. Um, What made their prayers so tangible and God's answers so immediate? I think it's the same thing that made these people so radical. It was the presence of Jesus. Like Jesus was right there. The words ringing in their ears. The miracles happening. I mean, he's right now. There is no later. There is not I hope so. He's it. So their, their expression of prayers was, was not like you and I. I wonder. They were certain. And it was directly connected to the absolute memory of Jesus, his, his presence in their life. Let me throw in some witnesses just to kind of flood our thoughts on this prayer and responsiveness and particular direction of our prayers. Listen to John the Apostle. And this is the confidence that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. Now this is the brother of Jesus, James. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. This is into Jesus. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. That is the proximity power piece right there. Abide in me. Then just ask. Here's God the Father through the prophet Isaiah. Before, I'm going to personalize it, before you even call, I will answer. While you are still speaking, I will hear. That's the Father's promise to us. Here's David. He understood something. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Hopefully, you're doing the math on what answers to prayer and what kind of prayers you pray and to see these kind of answers. He says, David goes on, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Again, Jesus saying it this way, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you will receive it, and it will be yours if you ask me anything in my name. I'll do it. It's undeniable that there's a connection between asking for what God is willing and answers, right? That's said over and over again. The disciples prayed two specific things that we can tell from the text. God, please give us boldness to preach Jesus and keep doing the miracles, signs and wonders, because you're using it to open people's eyes to your reality. And what did this text tell us? He answered, not in the future, right now. He answered immediately. So here's the point, just if you like to write things down. 
I challenge you to point your prayers at the witness and the glory of Jesus and then just stand back and watch God answer. If you point your prayers at other things not so certain, like your glory and your joy, maybe, maybe not. But if it's clearly pointed at the witness of Jesus and the glory of Jesus, he answers. And if you look at that, you go, I'm not really sure what to pray. I don't even know what that is. Then I suggest to you get close to Jesus, abide in Jesus, and what will come out of your mouth is the things that sound like Jesus. God is inclined to answer those things. When God blesses his people, he answers their prayer. Do we believe that, church? Okay, three of us have believed that. Very encouraging. I need more support than that. You know, the second thing, when God answers, when God blesses his people, there's true fellowship. Again, we got to go back to chapter 4, verses 32 through uh, 34, and then over again to chapter 5 to kind of get in total. I'm repeating myself from last week a little bit because there's power in it, but verses 32 and following says this. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That's a really big deal. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, and they had everything in common. Really big deal, number two. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. That's big deal, number three. To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That's pretty impressive, number four. And there was not a needy person among them. They were meeting each other's needs. Look at verse 12. And this is a, a synopsis of that experience. And they were all together. Just picture this church. Mine's yours. You got a need? I'll meet your need. Let's be together. Let's, let's hang together. Uh, let me just really describe this as I believe it to be. This is supernatural stuff. I know we want to hover around signs and wonders and healings and lame men walking. But to me, the miracle of this passage is that God shapes a peop people who naturally would divide and hate and gossip and slander, and line up under color, and race, and opinions, and God breaks out on a people, a mess of people, and makes them one under Jesus. That's supernatural. What's natural is all the other mess. What's natural is our culture and the world that we live in, opinions, and culture, and race, and politics, and differences. Most of us feel comfortable there, but when God's Spirit breaks out on the church, guess what happens? Fellowship. Legitimate True God-centered one another. That's what happens. For those who believe in the gospel, the resurrection, we're united deeply in the spirit through the son to the father, okay? Therefore, we are in communion, not only with Jesus that you celebrated just a minute ago, but with each other. Communion doesn't just exist privately between you and the father. You get that. But he makes us into a body of people. Fellowship, true fellowship. When God blesses his people, all the divides go down. All the wars and arguments and opinions go down because Jesus goes up in our lives. Do you understand? And there's true fellowship when God blesses his church. Here's how we see people. You and I, we're the same. We're both sinners saved by grace. That's the only way we stand. I got nothing. I got nothing. And we share that. And God creates a fellowship. That's when God moves on a church. Let me give you number three. When God blesses his people, there's true authenticity. Look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter five. Again, after that wonderful display of signs and wonders and they were all together, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. 
And more than ever, believers are added to the number, multitudes of both men and women. This is confusing if you're just reading it without some clarity, um, because it sounds like it's double talking. Nobody dared join them, but they had multitudes joining them. That's what it sounds like when you, when you read it. But there's a key uh, understanding to the words used in 13 and 14 that, that clarify it. That, that phrase, the rest, compared to the word believers in verse 14, that's the key. Let me just remind you of what has already taken place. After what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, the cost of commitment and loyalty to this fellowship just went through the roof. I can't imagine if we held a service and a couple of people decided to pretend a little bit with God and they just pass away right in our, in our service. And we simply said, hey, God takes this thing seriously. How many of us would be here? That shouldn't be played with. That's a dangerous thing. The rest in verse 13 were observers. They were the curious, they were the impressed, but they weren't the saved. It would be no different when God shows up and he starts doing miraculous things. Who wouldn't show up for the magic show? And if it's true that nobody really owned anything and they were just meeting each other's needs, well, who doesn't have needs? You'd probably want to show up there too because they were probably meeting yours. And they had this thing, this thing called fellowship and relationship that doesn't happen anywhere else. It really doesn't. The church is the one and only thing that looks like that. And so it was peculiar in a good way. And so they came, they came. Who wouldn't want those things? But what Ananias and Sapphira told him that playing with God without full devotion was extremely dangerous. Jesus, by the way, was never shy about talking about the cost of following him. He said, here's how I want you to do it. I want you to give up your life. Pick up your cross. You know that object of death, torture, and murder? Pick that up. Be like that and come after me. That's how much you lay down your stuff and your life. Follow me. Admit your need. The most gory, hated part of the good news story is that you have to admit that you need him that all of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags and you don't merit any favor from God. In fact, you're so twisted, I'm so twisted in my thinking, I cut myself slack in all my behaviors and God sees them as sin. I have to admit that. I have to come needy, stop pretending. And just as a comparison, there seems to be a big difference between the early church that I'm reading about here and the modern one I live in, my observation. I have been a, I'm going to split this. I've been a Christian for 35 years and I've been a churchgoer for 55, okay? My dad's a pastor, was a pastor. So I had an obligation. You were in church my first 20 years, three times a week plus, no options. And even as an unbeliever, I could witness some things. And now as a Christian, I witness some things. And I think there's always been three types of believers in a church. There are true believers people who by faith come to Christ, who lay their life down and pick him up and follow him. And there are non-believers, people who confess, I'm just curious about Jesus. I don't really love him. I'm not devoted to him, but I, I declare myself to be a non-believer. And then the church is full of make-believers. People who uh, like what goes on, like the side benefits of a fellowship, like how they feel about themselves when they sit in a pew or take communion, but they're not his. They make believe. They're sort of a more extreme version of Ananias and Sapphira. But what seems clear to me in this text is that these people didn't play around with God. They were 
in simplistic terms, people who love Jesus. And I think what's clear is that God blesses his people with true authenticity when we go after Christ. That doesn't mean you're not all welcome. I'm really glad. I'm not naive to who's here. Doesn't bother me. I'm glad. I want you to love Jesus. I want you to know him. I want you to see your sin and trust in Christ no matter who you are. But when God blesses his people, his people will look like his people and not this other version I don't even know how to define and the scriptures has no place for. Do you understand what I'm saying? That probably stung a little bit, but whatever. Um, Let me give you number four. When God blesses his people, the church has a good reputation. The end of verse 13, right after none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Seems weird, right? Scared to death of that group of people, but they're pretty great people. The phrase high esteem means to magnify or to praise, to give great respect. These people were different because God had truly changed them. What Jesus did was really powerful, truly life-changing, totally different and wonderfully good. And the only response these other people had to the church, scratch their head and marvel. That's what the text says. Like the way you talk to each other, the way you forgive each other, the way we meet each other's needs, or the way you're not insecure and selfish. I mean, you live different than anybody else in our world. I don't even have another friend that behaves like you do. And it's winsome. And it's beautiful. And I respect it. Now, clearly, an unbeliever doesn't know why, but we know why. Here's what Peter says. We are to live such good lives among the pagans, the unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are to live such different lives that there's no mistaking God's doing it. So I told you I wouldn't ask too many questions. This is one of the questions I'm going to ask. How do you think we do at this? Do we stand out? What do you think? I don't mean by being weird. (laughs) I mean by being godly. I don't want you to be weird. Things like this. Do you... Do they experience the love of Christ through us? Like this affection and care and concern that doesn't happen without Jesus changing our hearts? Do they see the the miracle of reconciliation in us? Do they see all these walls and divisions between people types and opinions break down because Jesus is the point of our life and living? Do they see that? Or do they just watch us divide up and go, you're no different than we are. We hate too. Do they watch the humility of Christ in us when we repent of our sins? Do they see the joy of the Lord in us that surpasses all understanding, like the kind we're gonna see here, suffering, and they're happy? Well, that's crazy. Joy that surpasses my comprehension. Do they experience the hands and feet of Jesus in our service? Do they experience the purity of Christ's bride? When God blesses his people, It will be when we act more like Jesus and what the world doesn't see anywhere else, it will peek in our doors and go, that is amazing. And they'll respect it. Now, we get the opportunity at that point to say, and let me tell you why. His name is Jesus. Jesus changed me. He can change you too. Do they respect it? Here's the uh, fifth thing. 
when God blesses his church, people get saved. I tried to figure out a clever way to say that, but that's pretty much it. Um, People get saved, verse 14, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. You understand, I hope, um, that all these other blessings we're talking about that God does for his church are means by which God uses to draw sinners to himself, right? So when when the world watches the church experience answers to prayer, when it watches the church experience these signs and wonders and miracles when it sees an authentic people who live and love each other, true fellowship and joy and suffering. God uses that to reveal some things in a lost person's heart. One is, my life is not like that. And I have been searching and looking and filling with all sorts of things my whole life to try to equal some version of life that you appear to have, and I can't find it. And what it does when the church lives like Jesus, it kind of reveals the lostness of a person's heart without Jesus. Do you understand? And there's a wonderful reality to this is also God creates us with a, as a created being by the creator, we are shaped to live in rhythm with God. And when we live as we're supposed to live because of Christ, it, it attracts the deepest longings in an unbeliever's life. I want peace. I want joy. I want to know. I want hope. I want sad. All those things you would put into everything you experience in Christ, an unbeliever has the ability to look at you and go, I want that too. I don't know how to get it, but I want it. And God uses those things. Now, I believe, I think we would say this together, that our God is sovereign, yes? You could do way better than that. Our God is sovereign, yes? And our God alone saves. Yes, okay. And beyond this being a special moment in time in the history of the church, multitudes are saving, megachurches are just happening, I have to ask a question. Why is it we don't see multitudes like this? I don't know. I wonder sometimes if God would bless us like this if we would live like them. Again, I told you, I'm not trying to pick on you. I mean, all these questions I have beat myself with since Thursday, so thank you very much. By that, I mean simply radically. Humble, bold, trusting, believing, confessing. Those people seem to have a lot of God in them and around them. I wonder if we suffer from getting all that we want and all that we want isn't very much. So we don't see that reaction. Maybe they look at us and say, why would I consider Jesus? Your life is just like mine. What's the win? What's the upside? You do business like I do business. You protect yourself like I protect myself. You're an isolated man like I'm an isolated man. By the way, this is my narrative, not yours, okay? Just a question. When God blesses his people, miracles happen. Verses 15 and 16. Now after these multitudes, both men and women, so that even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now this might be where some of us start to shut down because we simply compare what's going on here with our experience and go, I've never seen that. I've heard, because I have, I've heard of great things happening, but me personally, right? Of what God has done. And maybe, and I've told you this before, sometimes I just think, well, God chooses to do it for others, not me. 
But to be honest, this isn't a typical event. And um, so I had this moment in the preaching collective that I felt like I should just say it to the guys. I felt like we've been bumping into these signs and wonders over and over again for the last several weeks. And there's just some assumptions that we make about them. They're happening, they're real, God's doing it. But I have had questions in my own mind and had other people ask me questions. How does that fit in our modern mindset? What do we think about signs and wonders now? So I'm gonna just take a little pause in our little talk to, to bring in some like thoughts about signs and wonders. So if you're one of those people who like have asked the questions about where does this fit in our, in our culture and our mind, let me just give you a couple of thoughts. Let me first of all give you their function their why, because then you'll understand what God is doing with them, as opposed to how they're presented in our world. Like, they're very, uh, they're very self-gratifying. This is judgmental, seriously, but, but I'm making it. Um, very, it's kind of self-gratifying, focused on the wrong things. This is what biblical signs and wonders function is. Miracles in Scripture are acts of God that proclaim his sovereign power over creation and his commitment to, to do good to his people. That's what he used them for. I'm in charge and I love you, hence a miracle, okay? Miracles also did this. They proved that the apostles' claim as God's messenger was true. In other words, they authenticated the ones talking for Christ. Miracles came out of him. He says this about Jesus, probably has some credibility. And it authenticates the message. So when they speak, signs and wonders backs up that what they say is true, right? And they all point to the kingdom of God and the restoration of all things. That when Jesus taught us to pray, pray that the kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. So whenever miracles happen, it's a snapshot of when the kingdom comes. Do you understand? That's what it's for. In fact, Tim Keller says it this way, that miracles lead not simply to cognitive belief, but to worship, to awe, and to wonder. Jesus' miracles, in particular, were never magic tricks designed only to impress and coerce. Instead, he used miraculous power to heal the sick, feed the hungry, raise the dead. And why? We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order when he is king. And every time he did it, this is the way it's going to be. This is the way the power of God transforms things. The miraculous signs and wonders. So I believe this. I believe our God still does miracles today. Anybody else agree with me? Okay. I think the biggest miracle God has ever done is take a stubborn, warring heart and turn it from its war into affections to Jesus. That is, to me, the biggest one. And I'm not trying to downplay miracles because I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But the biggest miracle not to walk away from is that this room is filled with stubborn-hearted people. And God got his man and woman. He came after us. He changed us on the inside and wooed us to himself by grace. That's one great miracle. He is still healing the sick. I hear those stories. He is still rescuing the hurting and meeting people right where they need. And God, according to the scriptures, is jealous for his own glory and he still intervenes miraculously on behalf of his children. He does what he does. But there are still some questions, and, and I wrote down, and I just this longhand, just quickly wrote down some thoughts to just always consider, like a grid, when, when I think some of these things, based on the text and how it promised they would happen in the future, but also how we see it used in, in our world, these signs and wonders, I'll give you a grid to see them through so that you can, in your wisdom and the Holy Spirit's leading, figure them out. First of all, these are just some guidelines. Just remember that signs and wonders weren't normative then, and they're not now. People's reaction to them was, holy cow, not oh yeah, 
This blew their minds because it kind of suspended natural order for a time, for a season, for a moment. Things that don't happen, happened. And everybody knew it. Peter walked by several crippled people that didn't get healed. He healed some. And clearly they're having an ex- exceptional amo- amount of people becoming healed in this moment. But it still was not normal. It was unusual. And it was then and it is now. So just think that way. The other thing that is important to remember and I said it before, you amend it, so just go ahead and do it again. God did it then, he can do it now. Because our God is all powerful and he is all sovereign. There's nothing wrong with God's ability to do the miraculous, right? The third one is one I want to really stick because this will really condition how you interpret whatever is considered a sign and a wonder. Miracles pointed to Jesus then and they have to now. Otherwise, they're not legit. Let me make my point. This is a paraphrase to that. Miracles are a sign, they're not a destination. 15 years ago, I took my kids to Disneyland, okay? Only been there once. Drove down the road, I seem to remember a sign on the right-hand side of the street, and it said, happiest place on the earth, blah, 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 blah. But all I know is that there weren't thousands of people hanging around the sign, setting up picnic tables and campers, People might take a picture, but the sign is pointing somewhere. So church, where is it pointing? Disney. The sign is pointing to the place they're going. It isn't the destination itself. Signs and wonders point to Jesus. If they don't point to Jesus, they're not real. They're not of God. Miracles that point to man are not of God's doing. And I have to say that I'm not going to mention names, but clearly in our day, people can be the epicenter of signs and wonders. And it's the antithesis of what we see in the scriptures. In fact, Jesus warned the church about a day coming when false teachers would deceive people with that very thing, signs and wonders. In Matthew chapter 24, he says this, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect. And the way you'll know is if it doesn't point to Jesus. It's all for him. One last kind of grid to think through. Miracles are miracles. I know that's not very clever, but um, in other words, they're undeniable. Chapter four, verse 16, the unbelieving, warring world looked at what was going on with the disciples and said, clearly God's doing something. It's undeniable. That was their response to signs and wonders. And that's, that should be our response to the legitimate. They're instantaneous and they're complete. They're miracles. When God blesses his people, miracles happen. Okay, we've got a few minutes and two more points. When God blesses his people, and just a warning, this one's not gonna feel good, he brings persecution. I know you think I've lost my mind, but I haven't, so let me prove my point. Um, We're gonna read a long narrative now, verses 17 to the end of the chapter, to get us caught up in the context of what's happening with the early church, and then I wanna make my point. When God blesses his people, persecution happens. Here's verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them into public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers 
came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found uh, the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told him, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people because they were popular at this point. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, I've got to stop. There's a very comedic moment just happened, okay? Their accusation against the disciples is the very thing they asked for in Matthew chapter 27 when they put Jesus on trial and and Pilate wanted nothing to do with it. They said, let his blood be on us and our children. Remember that? Now they're going, we didn't mean it. We didn't want anything to do with that because you're trying to accuse us of this man's blood. But it's exactly what they asked for. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at, the right, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men out for, outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. God blesses his people when persecution happens. I know that sounds crazy, but isn't that what Jesus said in the very first words out of his mouth at the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are you. Happy is the word. Happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you under persecution. The text tells us that these men were beaten. Many Uh, Writers would say that was the term for flogging. Flogging was 39 minus 1 because 40 was sort of like the number that you would consider someone dying. So many writers would suggest these men's backs were just shredded, flogged. And I don't know how I would respond to a flogging. I'm, I'm certain I might have a few more words than what they offered, but there's no record of them saying, God, we're doing your work. Why, why, why? Why the suffering? Why the flogging? God, could you make it stop? Just make it stop and I'll be so much more empowered. I'll be so much more of a, a tool that you can use in this world. Just make it stop. You don't have any record of that. In fact, what they knew was what Paul had said already in, in Romans. 
they understood that the present sufferings were not worth comparing to the glory that would be revealed. They knew that. This is nothing. Because your glory, where you're going, going on display, this is worth it to us. According to church tradition, this is how it ended for these men. Matthew was martyred by the sword. Mark was dragged through the city of Alexandria. Luke and Philip were hanged. John was scarred in a cauldron of boiling oil and survived. Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. The other James was thrown off a cliff and then beaten until he died. Bartholomew was whipped and beaten until he died. Thomas was run through with a sword and Jude was shot with arrows. They died confident that God would save them if he wanted to, but they wanted to give him glory and glory was greater than their suffering. I, I wouldn't put this in here if it was just up to me. God, I want all kind of blessing. I don't want persecution. But here's what the scriptures say over and over and over and over again. We become more like Jesus in our suffering. He gets more glory in our suffering. Suffering is the way that he shows up for us in its variety of ways. Clearly here we have the opposition to Jesus in them. So I'm not just talking about suffering that's common to man. I'm talking about suffering for claiming Christ is what they endured. We just have to think about it the way they do. When we experience pushback, I suppose we should ask the question, do we ever? That's between you and the Lord. Do we understand it as something that God is doing for us? Do we see it as Jesus promised it, as a blessing? Blessed are you when you are insulted and hurt. Something to think about. Here's one last thing. God is blessing his people by always being victorious. Gamaliel's words are more true than he could possibly fathom at the moment. I'm certain of it. Verses 38 and 39 Again, dealing with how they, as a leadership, should deal with these disciples. He said, for if it, this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, it will not be able to, you'll not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. Here's a paraphrase. You can't stop God. Don't even try. You can't thwart his plan. In other words, when God is moving, you better move with him because you can't stop him, Right? And, and if, if God isn't moving, then stop pushing because you're going to lose. That's what this kind of obscure thought from Gamaliel is all about. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that God, God's blessing to his people is that he's in control. God's blessing to us as a church is that he is truly sovereign. And his sovereignty is conditioned by his goodness and his trueness. And his care. He's not just sovereign and indifferent. He's sovereign and in love with you. So just imagine how a God in control of all things with that much affection, a holy God-sized affection for people, a bunch of people like us, when he is for you and sovereign, what does that do to your life? What does it do to your perspective? Let me give you some ideas. No worries. You know, that happens. people say that a lot, you know? No worries. They don't mean it. God means it. That's why Jesus said, don't worry about your life, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. Don't worry. He is sovereign and he loves you. No fear. What, what could they do? What, what could they possibly do? Maybe like this list of 
Martyrs? I mean, that'd be it. Nobody wants it, but that'd be it. And then eternal weight of glory. No confusion. Like, I'm not saying you know everything that's going on. I'm suggesting that you know the one who does know everything that's going on. And so when you're facing all the kind of problems in life and you're certain of his sovereign control, you can go, he knows what he's doing. It affects you. It truly affects your heart. His blessing is his perfect control. Say amen to that. That's how he blesses the church. God is victorious and he is good all the time, every minute of every day, and God is for us, and he's always perfect in his actions. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the blessings that we take for granted. Clearly, over and over again, you are for us. You are weaving the story of our life to bring about the conclusion of your gospel, a formed image of Christ in us. We say thank you, even though sometimes we moan and groan. God, help us see this, this Christian life, this journey of faith, like we read in these texts. That the clarity of Jesus for us and in us is so much greater than our life that we live and the narrative written outside. God, help us to be a people who know and are able to recognize when and what you're doing as you bless us. We are encouraged today, Father. We say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.